So we're quickly improvising this morning, so I hope that's not too low. People can, can read that. Um, I thought we'd start out this morning in Psalm 118. Psalm 118. And with this next summer, one of the uh, series of messages that uh, Pastor Bob is considering is uh, a trip through the Psalms. Um, I don't know if you can see this very well. This is a model of the uh, of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. Is this out of focus? Or is it just too stinking small? Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it bring it up a little bit bigger so that you can see that. Maybe a little bit more. Well, that's not gonna work. Um, let me bring it back down. The reason I, I bring this up in the context of the Psalms is uh, so this is this is the Temple Mount area and the particular section of John we're looking at is uh, in this particular uh, section, chapter uh, 7 through 9, is um, set in the context of the festival of booths, of tabernacles. And so a lot of the action takes place right here on the Temple Mount. And this was uh, uh, probably what this, the temple looked like in that day, the one that Herod rebuilt. Uh, this would be the Temple Mount area here. And you see these porticos off to the side here. There's some on the other side. And so there was a lot of commerce and things that would occur on the Temple Mount as people would bring their sacrifices. And then the sacrifices would be presented on the altar, which was before the Temple. Um, and part of the liturgy of, of the ceremonies that would happen is, is that they would march down from the Temple so they would come down off the Temple Mount, come down around, and there's a, a wall here coming down. This is, this is the old city of David right here. Um, sometimes it's called the Citadel, uh, this area right here. Anyway, they would come down and they would march down to this pool down here. That's the Pool of Siloam. And that's where um, what happened was Hezekiah built a tunnel to channel the water from the Gihon Springs so they could close it off from the outside so the Assyrians wouldn't cut off their water supply when they were attacked. And the water would pool down here. They would come down, they'd take a golden pitcher, and they would dip it in the pitcher, and then they would sing the Psalms, 113 through 118, as they would ascend the hill. And this is a pretty good, pretty good walk coming back up, and it says that they would pop out the water gate which is right in uh, this area right here, and they would then uh, ascend up to the, to the Temple Mount, and they would pour that water onto the altar. And this is symbolic in a number of different ways. So I thought we would start, and we've been reading through, I don't know if you noticed, we've been reading through Psalm 113 through 118. We'll go ahead and read 118 this morning. So whoever is there, go ahead and read out. Okay, thank you to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. <laughs> Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of the distress, out of my distress, I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. 
I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me, surround me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like these. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live, and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have entered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we praise. Give us the success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. So, having set the context a little bit for this uh, psalm, maybe you can kind of vision in your mind how this is directly applicable to the the feast and the the ceremony that they were going through, the water uh, part of that ceremony. And I would specifically call your attention to uh, verses 22 uh, through 24. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I remember when I was uh, teaching uh, little guys uh, doing children's church, and, and part of children's church, you got a lot of energy and activity, and you kind of need to somehow contain it in a way that maybe the, the message of uh, the gospel can be caught. Uh, you might not be able to teach it because they might not sit that long. So we would sing songs. We would sing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. The Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad. What is that day? This is the day. Is it, is it today? This is the day that the Lord has made. It's speaking specifically about a day. It's speaking specifically about the day of salvation. Like the person's day of salvation or the day of the day that he died? The, the day of what Christ, um, what he accomplished for us, where he conquered death. The day of his crucifixion and the day of his resurrection are two very, very significant uh, events in Christianity. And uh, we celebrate that at Easter, right? Well, this account that we're reading right now in, uh, in John uh, 7, 8, 9 uh, takes place 
um, in the fall before that final uh, Easter, before the final Passover when Jesus was the Passover sacrifice for us. And he's been trying to help people um, get an understanding of what these, these festivals are about. So you recall that I, I put up a, a threefold um, theme for John in that it's about knowing who the Christ is and believing, which is more than just knowledge in your head. It's actually the transformation that occurs in your heart. And that as a result of that, that you will actually abide in him. And so you see John use these three words, know, believe, abide, or remain, to dwell in, uh, used repeatedly throughout John. And we're going we're gonna to expand on the, the last part when we get to the second part of the book. But John, in, in classical Johannian style, gives his uh, thesis at the end. And so you see that in John chapter 20, verse 31. I'm going to read 30 and 31. Therefore, many signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's what it's all about, right? So everything that we read uh, should be trying to help us know, believe, and dwell in Christ, that we can have eternal life in him, right? And... Where, what, uh, rather than retrace the whole trajectory that we've gotten, gone through so far, I'm going to ask you guys to retrace it for me. Who wants to be courageous and tell me what we've covered in John? What are the, the, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a help here. I'll tell you that we're in the public ministry portion of John, and you see that in uh, the outline as I put it together. We're in uh, the big Roman numeral two which is the, the public ministry, which is about knowing who Jesus is. And what is it that we're supposed to know about Jesus? Pardon? That he is the Christ. That he is the Christ. What does that mean? He is the opposite of uh, affliction and death. Or, yeah, okay. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. Fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Um, the, uh, um, see if I can paraphrase Daniel here. Um, he is the answer to our problem of death. Well, uh, I was answering kind of the way of these, uh, what he's been doing so far by way of the miracles that John is writing about is... Um, uh, well, he's showing that he is uh, he is God, <clears throat> and uh, the things that exist with God are the opposite of um, sin. So, it's like healing and uh, yep. So, so this is about the divinity of uh, Christ. That the Christ is divine. Yes, he's God, and that. Um, the kingdom of God is the opposite of the kingdom of the world. Is that well, I wouldn't say it's the opposite, but it's, it's totally um, they have different they have different uh, different kings. Yeah, put it that way. What else do we know 
I mean, that, that really captures it, that, that the Christ, and we see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is specifically speaking to the divine nature of the Christ. And we, I think uh, Tim kind of fleshed out for us last week what is meant um, by Messiah, what they expected, um, you know, what, what they were looking for in Messiah. And what God's plan is was, was much more than that. It was more than what their expectation was. And the, the stumbling block for the people was how can God actually come among his people? Right? How can a man be God and not be a blasphemous situation where a man makes himself God? But rather, God comes down to dwell among men. And we see that kind of revealed in the prophets as you move through, that that's exactly what was going to happen. But it's like, how do we get our head around that? How can someone be wholly human, fully human, and fully divine? And yet that's what was necessary in order to um, make a way for us to actually be in communion with God, to dwell with him in his kingdom, which is what his promise was from the beginning. Right? So Jesus is uh, helping people understand to know who Messiah is, that he is Messiah. John is helping to... Pardon? You mean John is helping? No, Jesus is helping. Oh, Jesus. Jesus has a particular agenda in what he's doing. So I would say that God is not ever random or purposeless. That everything he does has significance. So in that sense, every moment of Jesus' waking... Uh, waking life on earth had a specific purpose it's like he I, I can't imagine that he sat down and said well I'm just going to put on you know television for a half hour and unplug right? now that's not Jesus he was always about doing his father's work and to the point where the very thoughts that he thought were the father's thoughts the very words that he spoke were the father's words so in that sense God is very purposeful and Jesus was trying to help us understand. Now, John recalled it. He was the one that recorded it because John eventually kind of got it, right? And I would say eventually kind of because that's kind of how we struggle in our Christianity. God saves us, but we don't fully understand all of what he's done for us, and we probably won't understand that until we meet him face to face. Well, the part that always blows me away about John, too, is... is the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees would have had all the Old Testament prophecies, all yeah. the Old Testament recordings of the Messiah memorized. Yep. And they would watch Jesus walk through them, even the one that says that we're, he's going to be here and you're not going to accept him. And the part, the, the, part, the part that blows me away is that they would have known that, yeah. watched it happen, and still went, no, we're not. That's the part that blows me is the prophecies and all the things that he fulfilled. They, they them had, watching him happen. In fact, they even sang it. We, we yeah. read, you know, Psalm 118. They even sang it as they walked up the hill. And yet they didn't get it. In fact, they were creating the very hostile environment that's talked about in Psalm 118. That um, surely will be cut off. Right? And that uh, the kingdom of the world has no, no foothold on the kingdom of heaven. That's probably the best example of knowledge versus belief. Yep. And so what you see is you see um, in the development of uh, Jesus' uh, revelation of himself as Messiah. And he revealed himself in, 
in as both um, the replacement for and fulfillment of all that revelation that had come before about him, right? So they had created a religious structure about what you know what God had uh, revealed to them, and they created a lot of religion uh, and associated with that a bunch of laws that didn't necessarily express what God was intending to express. And, and that's my editorial, and I'll expand on that a little bit later. Because when you go back, when you understand the heart of God, and you go back and read the law, you see, man, he was really declarative and descriptive mm-hmm. in what, who he is and what he, um, who he is in righteousness, who he is in holiness, and what it means to have communion with him. So in that sense, we understand the Old Testament law as um, declarative or descriptive, <clears throat> as opposed to prescriptive. So we can make all sorts of religions that have a whole bunch of uh, prescriptions, a whole bunch of rules about things that you need to fulfill. In fact, I was actually uh, asked to comment on a Bible study method recently, um, and it was a, it's a, intended for oral cultures, right? So oral culture uh, is different than written literate culture in the sense that literacy actually changes the way that you think. And in an oral culture, um, the repetition of uh, the word is very important. And so we understand that John is writing to an oral culture. Well, we have Bible studies today that are focused for oral cultures. The problem is, is that it's very easy to take repetition in a Bible study and make it legalistic. And so in that sense, Jesus was helping to clarify what that religious practice was all about. And he did that by um, challenging specific belief systems that they had through the institutions and the festivals. And so he's showing how he is the replacement or the fulfillment of that. And so we uh, looked at the the first piece, uh, how he took on the institutions. I would say that the most important institution that he took on is placed last, which is the institution of tradition. What is the place of tradition in how we practice our religion? And that was the story of the woman at the well in the tradition of uh, their fathers, right? So he was talking to, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the land in between there. Uh, he was speaking to a woman who was uh, of non-Jewish heritage, um, and yet they had uh, a, syncret- a syncretic religion, so they understood some of the aspect of the Jews, and they preserved that through tradition. Jesus challenged that. When we got to the festivals, he takes on the top four, right? So there was a lot of things that these guys would celebrate. It's kind of like we like to have barbecues in our backyard, right, celebration. You do that every weekend during the summer, right? I call it a hoedown. You know, you get the middles and you turn up the music and you start dancing, right? So there's lots (laughs) of things that we celebrate. Um, But he took on the top four, the top, the first one, most important was an understanding of the Sabbath. In fact, by challenging the Sabbath, that gave them grounds to take him prisoner and crucify him. And it took a while for them to actually, you know, get their plan in place. But that's the reason that they uh, challenged him, because only God could do certain things on the Sabbath, and he essentially made himself God by preempting Sabbath law. And so he, he... uh, challenged the Sabbath. He also challenged in understanding what the Passover is. What's the Passover all about? Right? It's about um, what is required 
in order to bring us into God's presence, a sacrifice is required, a blood sacrifice. And we understand that in that sacrifice, there's not that is, that is the provision of God for our blessing, right? God put before us blessing and cursing. He said, choose life, choose blessing. Don't choose death, curse. And in that, he is provided for us. The greatest provision is the sacrifice of himself. And so we understand that um, in the process of uh, challenging the uh, festival of Passover, he made a statement about what manna was and the purpose of manna. Manna was heavenly bread. It was that which came down from God to um, sustain his people. Right? And Jesus said, I am that bread. I am the heavenly bread. And you need to eat me. And you need to drink my blood, which was the reference to the blood of the Passover. And the people freaked out and said, man, I, I don't know about this guy. He's pretty nutty. And then we see that when we got to uh, the next festival, the Festival of Tabernacles, we looked at that. And we saw that Jesus basically took on uh, the whole, he's, he's putting a capstone in a sense on um, the revelation of himself. There will be one final revelation, which we'll see associated with Hanukkah. But uh, he's basically helping them understand the whole of the festival system, starting with uh, Passover and first fruits and unleavened bread to Pentecost to um, Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to the Festival of Tabernacles. And he's putting that all together for them and helping them understand that the reason they celebrate that for seven days, the reason it's this massive hoedown, um, is because of what God did in salvation. What was accomplished on the Day of Atonement is that our sins were forgiven and death was conquered. And we now have entrance into the kingdom of God through his spirit. And that his spirit, as we read through chapter 7, um, and I'm going to uh, read this real quick, there were three basic questions that were asked about who Jesus is. They're still trying to know it. And some are actually believing it. Um, none yet have come to the point where they're willing to stick with him and abide in him, uh, other than uh, chosen few. Um, let me, let me find it here. Uh, in verse 37 of chapter 7, we read, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, that was the seventh day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So on the seventh day of the feast, what they would do is, I showed you that procession, where they would go from the pool of Siloam, they'd go up the hill, and they would take that pitcher of water, and they would pour it out on the altar. They would do that seven times on the seventh day. And what Jesus is saying is, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So he's, he's associating himself with um, that water. Now he's not saying he is the water, but he is saying that the water is uh, sourced in him. Right? He says, he who believes in me, as scripture said... From his inmost being will flow liver. I did this last week too. Rivers of living water. Right? Livers of living water. Rivers of living water. So this is a uh, an interesting construction 
right? It, it can be stated like this. Um, he who... Um, let, me, let me see how I can say this. Uh, if you... It, it's Jesus um, who drinks, and it's our belief in him. So he is the source of the living water. It's not that the living water flows from us. It actually flows from Jesus. And what happens is, is through belief in him, we actually, uh, that concept of being in him, we become joined to him. And the rivers of living water, which flow from the throne of God through the Son, we partake in that. We, we benefit from that. So this is speaking about the Holy Spirit. So we understand that um, God the Father sent the Son, and from the Father and the Son comes the Spirit. Now there's a whole later in church history debate about where does the Spirit come from? Does it come from the Father, the Son, or both? The whole point is, is that it's the Son, through His sacrificial death, that makes the Spirit available such that we can actually be in Christ and have the very living uh, water as part of us that we can share in eternal life. Whose life is eternal? Only God's. Only God has life within Himself. And if we can be in Christ, if we can be um, under His wing, under his covering, which is what the word atonement means, the covering. If we can be under his covering, we can have partake in that life. And that's what this says. It says, now on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out crying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And he who believes in me, drink, or in, and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being will flow liver. Rivers of living water. <laughs> okay, I can't give up on that. You'll, you'll always remember that now. But this, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in order to actually come under this covering, the plan of God had to reach perfection. Right? It had to reach fulfillment. And we understand when it says that Jesus is the end of the law, the teleos of the law, that that means that he is the perfection of the law. He actually completed all of the prophecy about him. And in that moment of completion, we can actually come under that covering. He can be our Savior. He can die our death. And we can share in his life. So he's giving an incredibly profound revelation to these people. And he's doing it in the context of helping them understand what this religious system is all about. What's Tabernacles all about? It's about um, actually um, that the, the Messiah needed to die for our sins and be buried and raised on the third day. That we could have new life in him. That's what it's all about. And he's telling them, and what happened is, is that you, you read right after this that some of the people were actually starting to get it. They said, is this really the Messiah? Well, no one speaks like this. Yeah? Um, so to be fair, verse 39 mm -hmm. is actually an editorial comment, right? This wasn't yes. Jesus talking. 39 is an editorial so comment. This is John saying, 
Okay, but he spoke of the Spirit. So that helps us. But I still feel yeah. for these Jews. I mean, if I was a good Jew, uh -huh. you know, I'd be at the feast. I'd be probably listening to whoever's, you know, speaking. <laughs> and I might go see, you know, listen to Jesus. I would think that I would. I would hope that I would. But then when he talks about, you know, in chapter 6, who eats my flesh and drinks my blood as eternal life, you know, I'd be going, whoa. Uh, you know, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, you know, it's like, oh, okay, this is everything, and this is to what I've been taught before, right, I brought this up before, but, you know, you talked about a moral tradition, Jesus isn't writing this, right. so that people can go back and review it, right, okay, John has done that for us, and laid this out, and now we can look at the end game, <laughs> yep. and, and that really helps, but boy, if I'm a Jew, in there catching one or two talks, you know, I might, I'm not sure that I would uh, necessarily be yeah. following. In those days, so, though, the, they were sacrificing animals as a religious practice, mm -hmm. um, their blood covering um, a temporary atonement for their, or covering their sin for however long. So they were kind of used to the whole um, drinking of the blood and um, oh, all maybe. that. Well, a little more than we are now. I've actually, the blood was poured out on the altar. Yeah. So to actually partake of that blood was not something that they would do. Well, they were a little more uh, open to the idea probably than we would be now today. Why do you suppose Jesus said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Because my flesh like is true. He was talking in the spirit. Um, so that really helped me, what you said. You know, about He is talking about the spirit. Same with the living water. Yeah. Because... He, he is life. talking about the spirit. Remember, where where is the life? He has, he has According to the Old blood. Testament, it's in, it's in the blood. blood. So, if you want to partake of the life, you got to partake of the blood. Yeah. But, but guess what? It's on not on your blood that you partake of. True. But but we're putting on a doorpost, just like the Passover, right? Right. So that we can be covered, atoned, right, uh, purified. Uh, yeah, all that. And, and, and I think and people were really struggling with this you're absolutely correct there were people that they wanted to know who this Jesus was because they were serious they thought you know we, we're looking for Messiah what will it look like when Messiah really comes and it didn't help that as much as love as the Jews had for the Greeks that drinking of blood was a Greek tradition in the army and that was oh my Right. So in the Romans as well. So really? that for them yeah. to for him to say, "Hey, do this," and, and then to associate that with the Greek army, the and Roman army would have been a bad thing. Yeah, and we see that in the way of the world actually takes things that you would uh, expect um, some meaning associated with in the kingdom of God and then twists it. Right. Um, when you look at the lie that Satan told the woman, he did it through uh, the things that God had created. He said, look at the fruit. It's good to eat. Well, guess what? It'll make you wise, too. In fact, when you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? So, we understand that like part truth, part lie. He's a master of lies. He can take that which God intended for good, and he can twist it for evil. And in that sense, you were correct in that um, the kingdom of the world is not the opposite or the antithesis of the kingdom of God. Rather, you see the image of God corrupted in creation. And so that they would be looking at how that had been twisted, how that had been used to oppress them, 
how it had been. Um, they're a conquered people at this point. I don't know if you know anything about living under as a conquered people. You've heard me tell the story of Russia and the squeaky wheel gets the grease and the nail that stands out gets the hammer. That's a, that's a perspective from a conquered peoples. When you live through uh, centuries of oppression, which they had at this point, being a conquered people, and they were still a conquered people under the, uh, the rule of the Romans, um, that affects you in the way that you expect things to work. right? And so he, Jesus is challenging them. He's offering them something that is totally different. He's offering them true freedom. And that that true freedom, guess what, has nothing to do with Rome. It isn't that he's a political uh, uh, leader, that he's going to free them from the oppression of Rome. That's kind of one of the things they thought. They thought, well, gee, if you're going to free us, then we won't have to answer to Caesar anymore. And what did Jesus say? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. So he's challenging them on, on just about every front about their belief, their beliefs about the world and the way it works, the beliefs about their religious system and what it was about. And they're saying, who is this Jesus? Where does he get his authority? That's the, the people that are really concerned about the rules. They want to know what authority he's got to, to interpret the rules for them. He isn't even trained. He isn't even a teacher. Right? He's not been ordained. Uh, the guy's a carpenter from Nazareth. Right. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? So they're challenging his authority. They're uh, challenging... Um, what were the three questions that I gave you? Where are you from? Where he's from? Pardon? Whose authority do you speak? Yep. And what is your purpose? Yep. So where he's from, what's his authority, and what's his purpose? And so... Um, Jesus is answering all of those. Where are you from? I'm from heaven. Where's your authority from? It's from heaven. What's your purpose? Well, I'm here to take you to heaven. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's, he's, he's as clear as he can be in phenomenal language. But at the same time, that's complex and hard. People are struggling with it. So, Dave, is it fair yeah. to say that Jesus' purpose, because, you, you know, that's the kind of third question, did he? I mean, I, it seems to me that it's fair to say that he came to make disciples. Okay? And I'm talking of the 12, the 70, right, right. the people that, in essence, end up changing the world, John being one of them, mm-hmm. uh, who he loved. Right. <laughs> you know? Okay, so, so I, I would was that the purpose, or did he come to say to be the Messiah for the Jews? Because he certainly didn't he fit into the mold that the Jews were looking for. Um, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he said that he would, he told him that he would give him all the, the, the land that he sees and his um, descendants would outnumber just, you know, the sands of the seashore. And then he said, and then I will make an everlasting covenant that will, for all the earth, which is Jesus. So that's, yeah. I mean, through his seed, all would be blessed. Right. So, I would, I would disagree with your premise that Jesus' purpose was to make disciples. Okay, why? And I'll go all the way back to Genesis. When God is, is walking with Abraham, and they're headed down to the valley, down to uh, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham knows that his um, nephew lives there, right? So Lot lives there, and he actually loves Lot. And 
uh, in fact, he gave Lot first choice in the land. Right? And uh, so he knows that he chose down there, and that's what he knows that God's up to something. So he uh, argues with God. And he says, what if there's 50 righteous? Right? And he brings it all the way down to 10. And at that point, the, the argument becomes clear. God would save even one, and he did. He brought out Lot and his family. Lot and his daughters, at least. Pardon? Lot and his daughters, at yeah. least. Yeah. yeah. Well, I brought out... Uh, his wife didn't quite get all the way she, out. She wasn't ready to go. <laughs> so, but, but I would say that Jesus came to save, and that he would have died even if it was only one. So his purpose was not to come and build uh, a religious empire through followers. His purpose was to come and uh, bring true forgiveness, being held harmless um, for your sin, and uh, death in your place, such that the consequence of that sin could be dealt with fully. But in order to do that, he had to be killed. So, I mean, this is all part of the, the game plan, it seems. Right, but my point is, is he would have done it for one, and that could have been it. It could be that the whole of the human race was lost, except one. That happened once before. Noah. Noah. That's right. And Peter, when he's trying to help under, help people understand what he's talking about in submission, um, he references Noah. He says, remember Noah. Right? Uh, so God, is, God has got a, a plan and a purpose. And he knows, because he's God and he can see the, the end from the beginning, he knows that there's more than one. In fact, we're sitting here today. He knew that we'd be sitting here today. Nothing catches God by surprise. Right? Jesus um, refers to what he's doing as the Father's work. Pardon? He, re he refers to what he's doing as the Father's work. It is the Father's work. What's the Father's work in creation? Pardon? To do the will of his Father. Right. What's the will of the Father in, in creation? To bring life. So, you know, if I'm looking for guidance from the Bible, and I'm trying to understand, so the Bible is a revelation of who God is, his person, his character, his purpose, um, and the response of the revelation of God from man to God. So we have a, a prophetic perspective, God to man, and we have a wisdom perspective, man to God, captured through human lives, um, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Um, preserved for us, right? When I look at that, that purpose, when I see God revealed, I see a God who is holy and just, but in his holy and justness, he is also gracious and merciful. And when we read Psalm 118, the, the line that I love every time, the last verse says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his Loving kindness is everlasting. When God describes himself, go to uh, Exodus. Um, so I'll take you there real quick. So Moses has, has got the people. Um, the, the golden calf thing is happening. And, uh, and what happened is, is that um, Moses came down from the mountain and he's seeing the, the hoedown that's going on and they're dancing in front of a golden calf 
And he's like, these people just don't get it. You know, I mean, we're like 40 days out and they're dancing to a golden calf. You know, how are we going to endure for the generations? Doesn't say much for they're picking up mascots either. Yeah, exactly. Horrible. Well, it, it, was, a, it was another god. It was a, a god that, of another culture. And this is when uh, God says, no, I'm not going to wipe out the people. The, he, he passes in front of Moses. We see in 34.6. And the Lord passed by in front of him, proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's what he puts first, right? But he also lets you know that he is righteous and just, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we understand that God is not someone to be Trivially dealt with or take it, think you can take advantage of his grace and mercy because he is righteous and just. And that's, that's who God is. So what he's about doing is bringing life. So Jesus' primary mission is to do the will of the Father, yeah. which is to um, seek those which are lost and save them. In the middle of Psalm 118, that's what it's about. It says, this is the salvation of the Lord. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. That's Psalm 118, verses 19 through 21. That's what God is about doing. He is opening the gates of heaven. And it goes on and says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What we're reading about in John is the rejection of the stone that is the cornerstone. It hasn't happened yet, but it's about to. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Is it marvelous that he was rejected? No. It's marvelous that he stood as a cornerstone in the midst of rejection. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's all about salvation. Jesus is there to die for the world. And he would die if it was only one that he could save. I, I believe that about the character of God. That's why I'm going to trust him. To save me. Because that's who he is. That's what Jesus is revealing. He's saying, I'm real for it. I am the way that you actually come into the waters that flow out of the throne of God. And he gives an imagery that comes out of Zechariah 14. Where Zechariah sees this incredible vision about the throne of God and living waters flowing out of it. And that it was for the health and healing of the nations. Right? You see the same imagery in Revelation. So Jesus is speaking in language which they should know. They know the prophets. And yet, those who don't want to believe choose not to believe. Then we get to this interesting little vignette because Jesus is going to bring one, yet one more aspect of helping us understand who he is. He's going to help. He's given us this aspect of sustenance through manna, the bread from heaven. He's given us this uh, example of the living water, that he is the source of living water. Next, we're going to see that he is the light that illumines all all of life, all of creation. And we're going to see that in the latter part of chapter 8. Um, but we have this vignette 
that is tucked right in the middle. And I want to get to it today before we run out of time, because this is actually very germane to what we're reading about in Psalm 118. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about this, and I saw your hand going, Daniel, so we'll, we'll come back to you. Um, when you look at, at the end of chapter 7, uh, the last verse there is verse 53, down through um, verse 11 of chapter 8. Some of your Bibles may not contain this. Uh, does, that, does anybody here have a Bible that goes from chapter eight or chapter seven, verse fifty-two, to chapter eight, verse twelve? So, so you have one, and the reason why is because if you have this in your Bible, it probably has brackets around it. Yeah, it has a little note ahead of it, and a note that says the earliest manuscripts do not contain this. Yeah. So. Uh, in fact, you know, when Dan Wallace was here and he was talking about codexes and that kind of thing and the, uh, this, the preservation of scripture as we've got it, um, this didn't actually surface and get referenced in literature until around 300 AD. And the earliest manuscripts don't have it uh, attributed to John and they don't have it in this location in John. Although there are later manuscripts that do. And since we don't have the originals, we can't say for certainty that it wasn't here, but critic, biblical criticism, which is where you take a look at the source and all that kind of stuff to determine what the original text contained, says that it most likely um, was not in the original that was added after. And, uh, but that uh, current biblical scholars would say it probably is attributed to John. And it was probably part of the literature of the day, so part of the Jesus stories that were circulated. Now, I would suggest that um, it actually is of John's writing, and it actually does belong here. Even though it seems like it doesn't, it actually fits in the theme of what's being developed. So either somebody is really smart and they understood the theme of John really well and they took this other biblical story and they stuck it in 300 years after the fact, I don't think that's what happened. I think that it actually was of Johannian uh, origination and that it was, it may have been added after the fact. So there was a circulation of John's primary gospel, but the, the first chapter was added after the fact. And the last chapter was added. So it could very well be that this was a later editorial work, but it's still John's. And John put it there because it makes sense. Let's read this. It says, at the end of this whole thing that was happening about the water and the Pharisees saying, you know, Messiah doesn't come out of Galilee, he comes out of Bethlehem. Um, and even Nicodemus gets gets uh, called, called out on it. Um, so we have this little vignette. It says, everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out, 
one by one, beginning with the elder ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, uh, where, uh, where she was, in the center of the court. So the woman was alone there with him. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This is totally huge. What is this about? This is the only gospel where that is, right? This is the only gospel where this is. However, you do see, um, you don't see this story recounted in the other three synoptic, uh, synoptic gospels. But you, uh, you do see Luke um, have similar uh, treatment of women. And actually similar language. So some might have attributed this to Luke. This story? This story. But um, it actually is not Luke's Greek. It's, it just happens to have some resemblance to some of the things you included here. So my question was always, what is he writing to you now? <laughs> and I know nobody can answer it, but right. I'm kind of guessing he's saying, okay, you, you have this sin, you have this sin, you know? well, and then they all begin to leave. So he could have been enumerating the sins. Yeah. <laughs> he I've could have been sin. quoting about uh, that of Jeremiah, one of the prophets, about um, how God alone is judge, and we are not to be uh, the judge of others. Do, do you know anything about the tradition of the Jews at this point in time? So we understand from both Leviticus and Deuteronomy how they were supposed to treat uh, women caught in adultery, and it applied to men as well. That's the part uh, I find really ironic here. Last I heard, adultery takes two people. And that's one of the pieces of irony here yeah. is that the man is not accused. Maybe a trap set by and, them. And not to, only that, they had to have, in order to make an accusation that would result in death, they'd have a couple they had to have two witnesses, and they had to witness the same event, and they had to have uh, a clear view, put it that way. So if they're an eyewitness, they had to actually see what was going on. So in many ways, this woman was like set up. I mean, who would walk into that trap? Um, but walls are thin. And, and there was, there was, there was a, a difference between a betrothed, a betrothed woman and a, a woman that had consummated marriage. So a betrothed woman, before uh, where a marriage is consummated, if uh, a woman was caught in adultery, she would be stoned. If the woman had consummated their marriage, she would be strangled. Right? <laughs> I don't know if it matters. The result's still the yeah. same. Yeah, the result is the same. <laughs> but, the, but the public humiliation is different. And so what was happening here, because she was being brought forth to be stoned, she was probably... Uh, what we would consider in our culture today, she was single and it was premarital sex. Right? But in that culture, she was betrothed to be married, and so she was to keep herself chaste for her husband, and was caught in an adulterous relationship, and so she would be stoned. I just see the goodness of God in this. And how he loves so greatly. So greatly. Yeah. That he took the time to show the people that it is nothing that this woman can do or not do 
that this, will separate her. That will separate her from the love of God. And, you know, the interesting part in, in the end, in verse eleven, it says, "I don't understand this because I don't know how." You know, he says, "Sin no more." Right. In other words, don't continue in in, in the thing that you've just been saved out of. I do see this as kind of a trap, though, because, as you said, he's pretty, they bring in just the woman, not the man. Right. So I would see, in not only in his forgiveness, not just in the fact that you can't, you know, there's nothing that I won't forgive, right. but I also see in the fact that he realized that, hey, I know what, just got, what you just got set up for, and this is, not enti- this is probably not entirely your fault. Right. And well, it, it clearly isn't, although the way that it's being presented is... Uh, she was a full and willing participant or something. Yeah, well, that uh, part of it is it's a trap for Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So they want, they want to know if Jesus is going to go against the law or if he's going to be compassionate as God described himself and go against the law. And he shows that all fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. So, I mean, this was really a good trap. You know, if you were scheming, definitely to, one of the better ones to use, because no matter which way he chooses, he's wrong. He's wrong. So what did Jesus do? So that everybody's he didn't choose. He went. He went back to the original problem, right? Um, and he said, "Okay, um, the one here who is without sin, let him cast the first stone." then that would be Jesus. He's the only one. And, and what was supposed to happen is the one who would cast the first stone was the witnesses. So those who were the witnesses were to step forward and cast the first stone to kill this woman. And we see that from the oldest to the youngest, they all just kind of fell away. Because no one um, believed that their witness was without fault, that they were truly righteous or just. That, that a righteous and just judgment requires a righteous and just judge. And none of them were the judge. So he basically turned it right back on them. But obviously from his last statement, he knew whether this woman was doing wrong and he tells her to sin no more. Yeah. Well, she had been caught in the act. They probably wouldn't have brought her uh, if she had, you know, not been, if they had not been able to substantiate their claim. But he shows his compassion. He shows his compassion. And what's interesting is that, you know, we do this within the church today. In many ways, we're as religious as the Jews and Pharisees. Um, I, I would say that one of the heinous crimes that we commit, so sexual sins are held in a special place of badness, right? Another kind of sexual sin that we wrestle with today is divorce. And divorce basically had the same kind of classification as adultery. And, you know, this is one of the top ten, right? And those that have committed adultery, those that have committed divorce are um, in a special class of sinner for which there is no forgiveness. You can't enter God's kingdom. You can't serve in God's kingdom. But what did God say? 
all who are thirsty, come to me. Right? If, you, if your yoke is too heavy, take mine. In other words, come under my covering. So you see the compassion of God incredibly revealed here. This is what this is all about. That's what the tabernacles was all about. That's why I think this story belongs right here. Because it's demonstrating the heart of God in what that festival was all about. And I, there, there are textual things that would also indicate that this happens here. Uh, I know I'm over time. Seven days was the, the uh, declared length of the feast. And on the seventh day, they would have the, the great water ceremony, right? Seven pitchers. And that's when Jesus cried out. The eighth day was a time when those that were single would come into uh, the Temple Mount area and they would have a big party. Wahoo. Wahoo. <laughs> it's like, yes, heaven has been opened. We have a king. We have a kingdom. We are part of God's provision, right? And they enter in and they have a hoedown. And that's where uh, young singles had an opportunity to meet. That is, everyone went to his home on the seventh day of the feast, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, the eighth day, he came to the temple and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach. So Jesus has even taken the hoedown and giving that meaning that through forgiveness, we can actually enter into his presence. That we can be part of that party. We can be invited to the wedding feast. As it were. So I'm, I'm way over on time. Um, and there's a lot more that we need to unpack here. But I wanted to actually get into chapter 8. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we uh, thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for um, the day that you died for us day that you uh, took our sin upon yourself, the day um, that you saw us in your presence before we were even born. And all, the, all our days are numbered in your, in your book, and Lord, you died for us. And we thank you that you conquered death and rose from the grave, uh, never to die again, and that the very life that is yours, um, you share with us. Lord, we thank you for that. We, uh, we ask that you would guide us as we continue studying your word, that you would challenge us, that you would challenge the things and, that we've twisted as a result of the world's um, invading our brains and our hearts, and that we would surrender those to you, that you would give us clarity, that we could truly know you, that we can be transformed in our hearts and embrace you, Lord, that's our desire. Lord, we ask that you uh, keep us and you protect us. In that goal, Lord, help us to speak to others also. That there are many that are lost. It's your desire that they have life. Give us the right words to say at the right time. Lord, we ask that you be with Bob this morning as he shares your word. Lord, we thank you for the business meeting that's going to occur later and uh, the great food and opportunity to come together and share our lives. Lord, we thank you for all of this and we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.